Hello and welcome to episode 83 of Africa Past and Present, a podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Alegi. And I'm Peter Lim. And our guest today is Brett O'Bannon, Leonard and Mary B. Howell Professor of Political Science and Director of Conflict Studies at DePaul University in Indiana. He teaches comparative and international politics, including African politics, humanitarian intervention, and women and world politics. He is a senior fellow at the Canadian Center for the Responsibility to Protect at York University in Toronto, Canada. Dr. O'Bannon has published on West and East Africa in both French and English in such journals as the Canadian Journal of African Studies, Policy Sciences, and Global Responsibility to Protect. He is currently editing The Evolution of the Responsibility to Protect, Imperfect Duties, forthcoming from Routledge. His interest in conflict early warning has resulted in invited presentations to the Economic Community of West African States and the UN West Africa Bureau of the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Welcome. Thank you. It's, uh, it's a singular pleasure to be here. Well, your talk here yesterday at the MSU Ion Africa seminar series focused on the very deep conflict in Cote d'Ivoire, and you were commissioned to report for UNICEF Cote d'Ivoire on its effects on children. And uh, yesterday you spoke uh, uh, very movingly and with great analysis of the roots and the lessons of this recent bloody conflict. What, what were the roots of the, of the conflict in Cote d'Ivoire? Uh, th first of all, thank you for um, your comments. It was uh, I enjoyed the the seminar a great deal yesterday. I um, I think one of the, the the principal puzzles about Cote d'Ivoire was how could a state that was that was known for so long as such a model of stability and, and economic success proceed so quickly towards the abyss, just from from great stability to to opening uh, the fragile states index in 2005 at the very top of the list as the most failed state in the in the world. Um, it, it happened with such rapidity that that was actually one of the first tasks I was I was given when I arrived in Cote d'Ivoire. The uh, special representative to the uh, to the secretary general asked me precisely this question: You know, how how did Cote d'Ivoire demonstrate or come to demonstrate so little resilience to the to the challenges it faced and and, and fail so rapidly? And 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 I think the answer to that is is um, due in part, at least, to uh, some intrinsic problems with statehood in the African context. Um, if you if you go to the Fragile States Index and you 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 just sort of glance at the, it doesn't take long to notice that uh, there's a particular problem of of state. Stateness and statehood in the African context. We unfortunately find in the top 35 states on that list um, uh, an overwhelming majority of them being in, in the African context, and lots of reasons why that would might be the case. But um, I think there's a there are some real critical statehood concerns there. But in the Ivorian context in particular, I mean, I think we have to look first to uh, the very serious economic crisis that began in the 1980s. Um, uh, as a result of the global commodities crash, which hit 
hit Cote d'Ivoire particularly hard. The, the, the fall in cocoa prices in particular, uh, well, I, I think the fall in cocoa prices outstripped the fall in commodity prices quite generally, actually. It was, it was particularly hard hit. Now, Felix Hufouet-Boigny, who, who governed Cote d'Ivoire as a master politician of neo-patrimonial politics, um, proved unable to weather the storm at the end of the day. He, what he needed to run that system was a revenue stream, and that economic crisis dried it up, and he really found himself exposed um, uh, as a result. So when he died in 93, that opened up a succession crisis that has, in some sense, yet to be resolved, actually. Following his death, uh, his successor, Henri Conambédier, introduced a very, very dangerous concept known as ivoirité or Ivoirianness. And it was originally, allegedly originally intended to kind of capture a national identity of those who live and reside in, uh, in Cote d'Ivoire. But it was very quickly turned into a xenophobic concept uh, that was meant to marginalize and exclude Northerners, Northern Muslims from, from citizenship, from belonging in, in, in the most general way. Uh, additionally, uh, under Bédier's uh, reign, he introduced a 1998 land tenure law that stripped uh, uh, immigrants and, and other strangers of their land rights that they had enjoyed. Um, under Chifoy Boigny, the rule was simple. The land belongs to those who develop it. And that had given immigrants a right to, to um, build their lives, basically, as a result of their efforts. They were, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of landowners were stripped of their, of their rights. A, a lot of those so-called foreigners were people from the north or Burkinabe who were going to work. That's, that's right. In fact, even internal migrants like, as you say, from the north of Cote d'Ivoire, but even Baule from the mm-hmm. center east mm-hmm. coming west mm-hmm. uh, lost some of their rights as a result of this. So it was really uh, – it, it was a really bad move and it, and it absolutely precipitated this, this very quick demise because the following year, General Robert Gay overthrows the Bédier regime and that destabilizes the, the fledgling democratic transition. Uh, Gay tries to install himself into the presidency in 2000 by stealing an election, and that leads to greater violence. That really, in fact, you start to see the the emergence of national-level political violence uh, in 2000 surrounding that election. The the eventual winner of that 2000 election, Lauren Bagbo, uh, does even more to marginalize Northerners uh, and leading to this very clear sense among Northerners of of the fact that they suffer from what are known as horizontal inequalities, that they, uh, they are out of the system. They have been excluded in any meaningful way uh, from participation, from, from, from belonging. And, and that just sort of opens the door to the 2002 rebellion that, that sort of brings uh, this all to a head. Um, and then from 2002 up until the post-election crisis of 2010, 2011, we had witnessed this kind of on-again, off-again uh, civil civil war, sometimes known as the no war, no peace kind of environment. As I say, the apex was in 2010 when 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 Bagbo tried to retain power, and uh, the widely seen winner of that um, uh, election, Alison Watara, was was installed when the rebel forces finally moved on Abidjan, and with the backing of UN and French forces, and um, seized the town, secured the town, and, and arrested Bagbo, and eventually sent him to the Hague. So. And one of the interesting uh, aspects of Bagbo being sent to The Hague is what you called yesterday the, the, the dilemma of victor's justice. Yeah. And, and what I thought was particularly um, insightful in your talk was the way that you talked about the past, present and future. 
Um, you talked about the the shocking uh, deployment of rape as a tool of war, and but you also talked about the contemporary situation and how Cote d'Ivoire is looking like a powder keg that could easily erupt again, even though technically we're supposed to be in this post-conflict situation now. So I wonder if you could speak to some of these themes, such as uh, I just mentioned, the, the, the use of... Uh, of rape uh, and structural violence and, and maybe also this dilemma of the, the ICC. I mean, there's been some interesting work done by African scholars recently on the International Court of uh, in, in The Hague uh, as, uh, regarding South Sudan and Uganda and other countries. But with Bagbo uh, there, if you like, uh, as uh, only one... Uh, side of a conflict, it seems like, uh, to me, like a recipe for future uh, discontent. Absolutely. Um, I'd say a couple of things about about these these points. Um, One, uh, recently the the Human Security Report of 2012 made some rather controversial claims about sexual violence and war. They, They argued, the authors of the Human Security Report argued that that the work that scholars on on uh, sexual violence and warfare had really overestimated the degree to which sexual violence had become an instrumental and instrumentalized component of warfare. Uh, I think I, my my analysis affirms what the Human Security Report dismisses as the mainstream narrative. I mean, there were clear connections between armed violence and sexual violence endured by, by primarily women. The Human Security Report also sort of suggested that much sexual violence that takes place during a conflict is actually domestic violence that just gets lumped in with warfare. But clearly the majority of the cases of, of rape that I, I had to deal with and I, I encountered were committed by those in uniform, or at least some kind of uniform, rebels of some sort, or or soldiers for the army. So I think the case of Cote d'Ivoire affirms, uh, again, what the Human Security Report kind of dismissed as merely a mainstream narrative. I think it's um, it's the case that, that rape, sexual violence is increasingly, uh, you know, war has always involved sexual violence. It has been a part of warfare forever. What's new, these scholars argue, is that it's actually become an instrument of warfare. It is a way, it's one of the ways in which war gets prosecuted. It's a way to demoralize an enemy. Um, you know, and, and some, of the, some of the really troubling testimony that, that I received revealed the kind of sexual violence that can only be meant to demoralize an enemy. I mean, the rape of very, very young children or very, very old women, um, clearly intended to send signals as well as to cause pain. Uh, so it is, it is um, you know, the, the conflict in Cote d'Ivoire never reached the, the levels of fatalities of Liberia and Sierra Leone, but it was a deceptively violent and atrocious conflict, actually, and I, and I think that comes through in, in my report. The, 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 the question of the arrest of Bagbo and, and the indictment of Bagbo at the ICC is a really, really important one. Uh, you know, it, it, there's no better truism or more fundamental truism about conflict than it takes two sides, and clearly both sides of this conflict uh, committed serious human rights abuses. Uh, the rebels, the Force Nouvelle, uh, were responsible for the slaughter of women in an incident known as the slaughter of the Danse d'Ingenue, the Danseuse d'Ingenue, the D'Ingenue dancers. They were responsible for the slaughter of some 60 gendarmes. Uh, 
and several dozen of their children uh, at the outset of the conflict in, in near the town of Boaké. Uh, I uncovered another incident of um, dozens of young men being stuffed into a, a locker, uh, in, into a, a large metal container, and left to suffocate in the hot sun. I mean, these were things that, that the rebels were responsible for, and, and the rebel leader, Guillaume Soro, almost certainly knew of, of at least two of those incidents. Um, so, you know, both sides committed serious atrocities, serious crimes of war and crimes against humanity. Yet only one side in this conflict is facing justice at The Hague. Mm -hmm. Now, President Bagbo, uh, his wife, and the former student militia leader, Charles Blake Goudet, who is indeed responsible for very, very serious offenses. He was particularly known for for what became uh, inst instigating what became known as the Article 125s, which refers to the 100 franc cost of a uh, liter of petrol and 25 francs for a book of matches used to burn people alive. I mean, this was really atrocious stuff that he was... So I don't want to in any way downplay the significance of the crimes that, that Bagbo and his supporters are responsible for. But, but clearly the rebels have something to answer for. But Guillaume Soro today is now president of the National Assembly. And there is almost no way that they're going to be brought to justice. Um, the president, Alison Watra, who I think is committed to, uh, to good governance and to moving the country forward, owes his, owes his position to the Force Nouvelle, who put him in power. And he's beholden to them. And so he's not in any kind of political position to try to uh, bring some of those people to justice. So um, that has indeed left uh, a great many uh, among the Bagbo supporter community, rightly so, I would say, complaining of, of a victor's justice. In your UNICEF report, uh, you also point out the generational dimensions yeah. of this conflict. I mean, it makes for harrowing reading. I learned a tremendous amount from, from your work, and I thank you for it. Mm -hmm. um, thank you. The, one of the things that this unstable, uncertain uh, society that exists now in Cote d'Ivoire in the wake of, of the war and its aftermath um, has had on, on young boys, for instance, right, that now you say, you know, and maybe you made this point in the talk yesterday as well, that they aspire to be warlords rather than footballers. Yeah. And, and I think that that statement is, is dramatically sad. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about this generational dimension. Yeah, sure. You know, someone said to me, um, I think it was a father who said, it might have been actually a, a, a psychosocial worker, who said, you know, children have grown up knowing nothing other than violence, you know, and, and as a result of this, they, in 20 years, they will still be dreaming only of violence, you know, this is just what they know. Uh, and so many concerned observers there on the ground talk about, you know, the so-called destruction of their personality, the, of the young. Um, we've really witnessed the militarization of young people in many respects. And as I, as I did point out yesterday, that instead of emulating footballers and really struggling to be um, putting themselves into, into that track or putting themselves into the efforts of schooling and those kinds of things, what they're, what they're finding most powerful, most interesting, most compelling are the warlords, the comm zone commanders, for example, in the, in the north. Um, uh, so I, I've seen, uh, you know, Cote d'Ivoire is awash in weapons. I mean, one of the problems is just simply the presence of small arms that are available. Um, in the West, you can, you can purchase a, an AK-47 for as little as 20,000 safer francs, which is about $40. I mean, um, the global 
market price for an AK-47 runs about $800, $900, right? So this is, this is really a function of just how many weapons are, are there and available. So even the young can, under some circumstances, afford to, to purchase these weapons. As a result, uh, a number of things have happened, actually. I mean, young people found themselves, particularly young rebels, found themselves sometimes usurping the authority of village chiefs because they had the weapon. And so people uh, came to them uh, for resolution of conflicts, for, for you know, the, the kinds of services that, pardon me, that, um, that village chiefs offer. Another, um, another thing is we just see that um, families are transmitting this conflict to the next generation. It's kind of referred to as transgenerational transmission of conflict. You know, Malinke women and, and Baole women have, for example, in the, in the Boake area, created separate markets. They, where they used to all come together, they've now got their own separate markets. And, and as a result of that sort of division, Ballet children and Malinke children are no longer playing with each other. The parents are sort of refusing that to happen. That's another indication of this transgenerational transmission. So we've got on the one hand the sort of reinforcement of collective memory, of trauma, of, of, of the horrors of war that are uh, being you know, kind of instilled in young people today in the context of an overall generalized militarization of young people. And that's a really explosive, explosive combination. And it does not... You know, it does not portend well for, for the future. Yeah. What about looking at some of the more optimistic uh, aspects here? One that you mentioned yesterday was the use of traditional yeah. or indigenous forms of reconciliation. Could you speak to that and other, f other more positive trends that might help to mitigate <laughs> yes. this, this conflict. Yes, that's right. Um, I think that's really important, actually. It is not all doom and gloom. Um, I think w the highlight of my, of my work uh, in Cote d'Ivoire came in the midst of, of a, um, an analysis of working in a, with a group um, in, um, where were they? this actually might have been in Mans, I think, in the West. Uh, and I met with a group of young people and as well as, as elderly people all together, right? men and women, boys and girls. And we were just kind of having a conversation about what kind of impacts the conflict had had on them and where they wanted to see this go and how they, you know, the way they felt about current conditions. And, and then I asked them if they had any questions of me and a young woman uh, stood up and said, yes, I, I do actually. Um, she said, you know, I, I understand as a young person, I understand that in the past we used to have different ways of, of dealing with local conflict. We had these, you know, kind of traditional mechanisms of, of conflict regulation that we seem to have lost. And I would really like to learn from, from our grandparents, you know, how they went about doing those things. And you could just see in the faces of the elderly folks in the, in the, in the room, um, in the group, just beaming. And they were so eager to start talking about these things. And, and some of it's referred to as alliance interethnique or joking relationships, parenté, uh, uh, cousinage and, and, um, and um, I'll, I'll give you an example of some of my work in Senegal that, that I, I found interesting. Um, the first time I, I arrived in the rural area in Senegal, I had been introduced to an elderly gentleman, and he asked my, my Senegalese name, and I said it was Njai. And he instantly turned on me, I and mean, his face changed, and he started ordering me around. He demanded one of my cigarettes, told me to go get him a cold drink of some <laughs> sort, and I... I, I didn't know what to do. I'm like, okay, <laughs> sure. I, you, and then he stopped me. He says, you obviously don't know what I'm, I'm doing here. And he explained to me that as a job, 
uh, he and I were fictive kin and that we were bound to each other in a way that required, that obligated us to engage in this kind of joking, uh, teasing uh, encounter. And and uh, I since learned a great deal about that stuff. And it's been widely interpreted as a, as a conflict regulation mechanism. What better way to, have, you know, to avoid conflicts uh, than to require people to engage in sham conflicts and obligate them not to take offense in these kinds of things. So blood packs and all these kinds of things are what this young woman was referring to. And she was lamenting that they seem to have been lost in her environment. So one of the things I proposed to Eunice, I mean, the, one of the purposes, the central purpose of my consultancy was was to make recommendations to UNICEF regarding how they might better contribute to peace building within the overall multidimensional peacekeeping force in, in, in the Ivory Coast. And uh, one thing I suggested was um, creating conditions, opening up forums, local community forums, in which these kinds of conversations among the younger people and the older people uh, about you know, how to perhaps recapture some of these lost traditional mechanisms. I think they have real power. Um, I, was, I was cautioned yesterday, I think, by, by you, Peter, I think, even, about the, you know, the possibility of invoking a joking relationship in the face of a person with an AK-47 and what that might mean. And I, I was well cautioned by that. But, but at the same time, I've, I've seen people speak of these things as if they, they have real significance in their lives. So I, I think there is something there. And so that was a suggestion I made to UNICEF, was to try to help create the conditions to, to bring some of that stuff back. Speaking of peace building, yes. uh, the responsibility to protect is a relatively new concept. Uh, in your position as senior fellow at the Canadian Center for the Responsibility to Protect at York, you're perfectly positioned to maybe help us uh, understand the origin uh, of this concept, its meaning, and particularly how it relates to Africa. Yeah, great. I'd be happy to talk about that. I, I think this is one of the most important normative developments in international politics in the last 50 years. Um, Thomas Weiss said that no idea has traveled as far and as fast in the international normative arena as the responsibility to protect doctrine since the Genocide Convention. Uh, the origin of the label responsibility to protect, or R2P as it's often referred to, is um, an international con commission known as the International Commission on Intervention in State Sovereignty that was sponsored by the Canadian government uh, that issued a report in 2001 with the title Responsibility to Protect. And the central idea was, was, was that um, you know, sovereignty, state sovereignty has often been used as a shield to prevent you know, interventions into very serious crises like Darfur, Rwanda, or Central African Republic today or something. And the commission was arguing that, however, notions of sovereignty have started to change. And along with the rights of sovereignty, of non-interference, non-intervention, and sovereign equality and those kinds of things, come certain responsibilities of a sovereign, principally to ensure that mass-scale human rights abuses don't take place within their populations, within their borders. And if they fail in that sovereign responsibility to protect their people from wide-scale atrocity, then that responsibility transfers to the international community, uh, who then have a responsibility to, to act, to, to bring to an end mass human suffering. The origin, so that, that's, where the, that's where the label comes from and some of the ideas were articulated, but the ideas that they were articulating were kind of predating that commission for sure. Um, the Secretary General of the United Nations has said that the responsibility to protect was really born in the blood and soul and soil of Africa. Um, 
because of the events of the 90s primarily, the terrible civil wars in Liberia and Sierra Leone that cost the lives of so many people. And then, of course, the, the apex or the, the nadir, if you will, of, of the decade and the Rwandan genocide when the international community did, did nothing. And then the international community did more than do nothing. They actually took positive steps to prevent others from doing something positive. And um, that left the African Union, as it switched from the, you know, from the organization of African Union to the AU, to, to rethink some of their own ideas about interventionism and human rights. And they wrote into the constitutive document of the African Union some of the very ideas of R2P a year before the, issue, the, the report was issued, actually. So I think, I think there is an argument that Africa is uh, the, the place in which some of these first ideas about rethinking sovereignty, about no longer allowing sovereignty to be a shield, uh, for tyrants who, who commit mass atrocities. But then it gets formalized in this articulate way with this commission's report. Now, a few years later, in 2005, the World Summit, the, the world leaders come together at the World Summit, the 2005 World Summit, and issue what they call the outcome document. And in that outcome document are paragraphs 138, 139, and 140, known as the R2P paragraphs. And they articulate in what is now a, you know, a form of international law, the basic principles of committing uh, states to honor their responsibilities to protect the human rights and the dignity of their people, and that the international community has a responsibility to aid states in their responsibility, to help them build the capacity to prevent these things from happening. And then thirdly, the international community has a responsibility to act in a decisive and quick manner when states have failed in their own sovereign responsibilities. So it's a, it's a set of ideas about humanitarian intervention, but it's not synonymous with humanitarian intervention. It has a great deal more to do with helping states take on their own responsibilities for these things. Some critics have also pointed out that R2P can be a shield for, you know, acting in the interest of particular countries. Yeah. And I think... Uh, listening to you, I was reminded of the United States-led war in Libya yeah. in 2011 as an example. I, we were talking earlier also about Hillary Clinton's deployment of the phrase smart power. So don't want to overcomplicate the question, but yeah. was the Libyan case then a case of R2P serving the interest of a foreign power in a particular way to intervene to protect a population you know, while hiding other interests? And, um, you know, is smart power part of the arsenal that can resolve some of these conflicts? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Peter. I, I, um, Libya and Cote d'Ivoire are actually viewed by, by many as the two examples of a new politics of protection at the United Nations and the UN Security Council. Uh, the Security Council authorizations that, that led to interventions in Libya and Cote d'Ivoire by, by UN forces both referenced clearly the responsibility to protect. So they are held as examples of R2P in action, and both are, by supporters at least, um, held to have prevented atrocities, even worse atrocities from happening. The Libya case, I think, is, is considerably more complicated than the Ivorian case. Uh, and and I, we could talk about the Ivorian case too if we wanted, but I, I'm not sure that the, the proposition that R2P was a cover for strictly national security interests of the, in, the intervening powers, France and the U.S. in particular, uh, then it is a kind of a tendency, uh, which relates directly to the soft power, the smart power question, of, of 
kind of relying on military solutions, very kind of pulling that trigger too quickly. And I think that's why supporters of R2P, like South Africa, have now become much more circumspect about, about R2P. They have since kind of backed off their otherwise quite open support for the Responsibility to Protect Doctrine. It was an advocate at the World Summit, for example. But since Libya, it has kind of retracted some of those statements. And I think the reason is, is that, um, there, you know, South Africa and, and others within the African Union were trying to put together a team of, of uh, elder statesmen to uh, work out a, a deal by which Gaddafi could go into peaceful exile and kind of bring that crisis to an end. But the U.S. and the French kind of pulled the trigger too quickly in their view, right? They just sort of didn't allow the, that that diplomatic initiative to uh, to continue, and I think this is good evidence that that might have worked actually, and and saved a great deal. And we now know that the intervention in Libya has, you know, not brought about the kind of uh, peaceful solution that we would have liked to have seen. And, and indeed, it's spilled over into Mali, and and it's brought about. And and that's just a good reminder that any time you use military forces for for humanitarian purposes. I mean, there's lots of dilemmas there. And I mean, the very idea of, uh, well, Kosovo gave us the expression humanitarian bombing. Right? That's a, <laughs> that gives you some sense of the inherent dilemmas. Mm. I mean, but I think Libya was an example of perhaps pulling the trigger too quickly when there were still diplomatic options on the table. And I think the principles of RHUP kind of, kind of imply that we exhaust uh, diplomatic initiatives. However, there is, a, there is a tension there because if atrocities are imminent, uh, then acting with dispatch is necessary, is important. So there's, there's no easy um, call to make there. But I think at least from the African Union perspective and the South African perspective, uh, the Americans and the French pulled the trigger too quickly and closed the door on a possible peaceful solution. That would have saved us so much grief uh, as far west as Mali. So, yeah. well, perhaps we, before we move to conclude, we could turn back to, to Senegal. And in an article you referred to farmer herd a conflict yeah. There And I think yesterday you also raised this question as a sort of a litmus test for conflict early warning. Yeah. And in another article, you've talked about monitoring the frog <laughs> in Africa uh, on um, conflict early warning with structural data. I wonder if you could uh, perhaps talk to these issues of early warning and perhaps um, in doing so also venture a comment on, on Senegal. Um, I mean, yeah. the... There are long simmering um, tensions in Casamance in the yeah. south, which often receive little mass media publicity, but seem to persist. Yeah, sure, indeed. My my initial research in West Africa was on local scale conflict management. I, I was interested in it as a kind of a governance problem. What was the capacity of local communities to you know, create institutions of self governance to weather the challenges of political and economic reform that were taking place at the at the national and international level? And the kind of outcome that I was using to assess the capacity of local governing institutions was was herder farmer conflict. How well did these relationships get managed? And, and the reality is that herding and farming communities are not inherently conflictual. They, they run the continuum. They, herding and farming communities often find themselves on the symbiotic end mm. of, of the mm. continuum where they uh, exchange meat and milk and you know, each has something the other needs. And you know, there are lots of contractual relationships that they work out. You know, um, often uh, farmers invite uh, herders into their fields after the harvest to feed on the chaff and leave behind dung 
strong fertilizer to, you know, n you know, nourish the soil. And, you know, there's lots of those kinds of symbiotic exchanges that take place. But, but on the other end, you know, um, these relationships can go, can go sour, particularly when, you know, struggles for, for scarce resources, pasture land and agricultural land and those kinds of things get, get more intense. And, and at the very end of that continuum, I would argue, is a place like Darfur, where formerly, you know, positive relationships between, between herding and farming communities turned genocidal under, under certain conditions. And so I've been interested in herder-farmer conflict for a while. Uh, and then it was this idea of the, the, the continuum along which those relationships reside that got me thinking about what they portended for kind of, kind of larger scale conflicts. Um, the reason I, I first started thinking about that connection is that um, Senegal and Mauritania almost went to war in 1989 um, over a clash that took place in the, in the river there, in the Senegal River there near the town of Bakel. And what I discovered is that prior to this event that had, you know, both sides moving forces to the region and, and you know, these countries needed nothing less than going to war with each other. And, and yet it was... It was sort of foreshadowed by an increase in herder-farmer conflict that was showing that these, that, that that resources were increasingly scarce, that the governance capacity of local institutions was increasingly weak, and that things were being left to sort of fester and things were getting worse. And so I started thinking about what meaning we could draw from the observations of the scale and intensity of of herder-farmer conflict. And I I argued in a recent piece for the uh, the journal Global Responsibility to Protect that. That and, and, and Molly actually has instituted or had instituted a, something like this, actually. Um, we can observe the status of herder-farmer relationships as an indicator of the structural conditions of society because herding and farming communities or the relationship between herding and farming communities is mitigated by political, economic, social, cultural factors. And, and when those stresses start to build, they show up in herding and farming relationships. And so what I was arguing is that when we see on a kind of regular basis greater numbers of herder-farmer conflicts erupting and getting increasingly violent and of greater scale, then what's that, what that's telling us is that the structural conditions within society, the economic conditions, the political conditions, are getting of the sort that greater scale conflict is made more likely. And so I find it, um, the, the analogy to the frog is, um, the biologist that observes the frog at the at the at the water side. When the frog starts dying, we know that something has happened in the environment, and and uh, and then you go looking for the problem. And that's kind of what I'm suggesting that is possible with herder farmer conflict. It's uh, it's a good indicator of of where the political economy is at any given moment. Well, that's a very uh, intriguing metaphor to for us to ponder and for <laughs> listeners to the past, present and future of conflict in Africa. Thanks so very much, Brett O'Bannon, for talking to Africa past and present. It was a real, real pleasure. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast.org 
at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.